Welcome to the Lowenstein Sandler podcast series. I'm Kevin Iredell, Chief Marketing Officer at Lowenstein Sandler. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Now let's take a listen. Hi, welcome to Don't Take No for an Answer. I'm your host, Linda Bennett, Chair of the Insurance Recovery Practice Group at Lowenstein Sandler. Today, we're going to be talking about litigating in the virtual world. Within the last year and a half, the litigation world was turned upside down by the COVID-19 pandemic. Literally overnight, courts were closed, contentious lawsuits were stopped in their tracks, and parties knocking on the door of resolving their matters at mediations that had been planned months in advance were abruptly canceled. For a few months, judges and litigants alike were scratching their heads and trying to figure out how to maintain business as usual in a fully virtual environment. Mediators were among the earliest adopters of Zoom technology, pivoting their practices into TV land, complete with virtual breakout rooms. Court reporters soon followed, assuring litigants that depositions could take place over the virtual airways and screen sharing technology could be leveraged to maintain the surprise factor associated with using deposition exhibits. And while courts were slower to transition to the virtual environment, largely owing to their far less sophisticated technology infrastructure, judges too learned to be adept at using a variety of virtual platforms to conduct case management conferences, hearings, and oral arguments on dispositive motions. The one big gap in the legal process was figuring out how to conduct jury trials under the extreme conditions presented by the pandemic. Now, despite the remarkable resilience that all stakeholders to the litigation process demonstrated during these unprecedented and challenging times, the questions that we're going to discuss in today's episode revolve around whether these were or should be temporary fixes and whether the legal process will be forever changed as a result of COVID-19. To explore these issues, I'm pleased to welcome my partner, Michael Kaplan, who is a seasoned litigator and trial attorney who used to be able to brag about his executive platinum frequent flyer status as a result of litigating matters all over the country. And our friend, Robin Goldfisher, Senior Vice President and General Counsel of the Valley Hospital. Robin has been managing outside counsel and handling a wide variety of complex litigation for more than a decade, and therefore is well positioned to give us the client perspective on what changes should stick and which one should be 86th. So welcome, Robin and Michael. Very pleased to have you here today. Good to be with you. Thanks, Linda. All right, let's start at the beginning. What's the best thing about litigating a case in a fully virtual environment? Robin, why don't you lead us off? So best thing, clearly, it's more cost effective. You don't have the travel expenses. You don't have the travel time. No hotel stays for experts, meals. Don't have to keep track of that. So from a purely economic vantage point, the virtual world has played well. So Mike, what's the counterbalance to saving the money, which is hard to dispute as Robin's getting beat up by her business folks to keep that litigation budget down? What are some of the uh, consequences of the cost savings? I think you're losing the ability to, to really be an advocate. I mean, I'm someone who believes that that litigation is an art. And the advocacy is something that you practice and, and I don't want to say perform, but something that you, you execute. And advocacy via the virtual setting is very challenging. It's just you're not a lot of advocacy is based on reading cues that aren't 
um, necessarily spoken. They're, they're viewed and, and the inability to see people, how they're reacting to information or to gauge people's body language to determine whether or not they're telling the truth or they're uncomfortable with the topic. You're losing all of that because people are literally, in, in the case of depositions, are sitting in their offices, likely wearing, you know, pajama bottoms and are very comfortable uh, in their homes and you lose all of that. So that's, I think, the highest level thing from a purely advocacy standpoint is, is you just lose the ability to be an effective advocate on so many different fronts. Got to dress for your day. I guess that's what you're saying, Mike. So, so Robin, how do you, how do you strike that right balance between managing the litigation budget and knowing, you know, what are, what are you going to be instructing your outside counsel when they need to be in person versus uh, when you'd prefer them to leverage the technology that's available now? So I think it's all a matter of careful selection, be it a certain things are easy to do via technology. For example, appellate arguments, um, arguing motions where you don't have witnesses. And I would say that in some respects, having the technology has played well because you can pin the judge to your laptop and you can watch his or her facial expression as your adversary is making their argument and you can see what is and is not playing well uh, to an extent that you were not able to do if you were sitting in the fourth row of a courtroom listening to the same motion. I would also argue that it makes it more accessible for general counsel to be present at important motions without having to get in the car and drive to Trenton or to New York City. So I think those are benefits. I don't think it plays well in a matter where you have multiple witnesses testifying in court for the reasons that Michael expressed. I think you have to be able to judge people's body language and demeanor. I think it's difficult to know if someone's sitting in their living room, whether there's somebody sitting at the side coaching them that you can't see. So I believe it has a time and a place. I think we used it for all things um, during pandemic for obvious reasons. And I think now's the time to sit down and really determine the advantages and disadvantages based on the matter that you're dealing with. So Mike, can you give us an example in your practice over the last 15 months where you've conducted a deposition or an oral argument in the virtual world where you feel like you've both had a benefit or a gain from doing that? And give us an example where you felt like something was lost over the over the video screen. Yeah. So, I mean, I think from a beneficial standpoint, you know, we are in the process of arbitrating a case now and we have a very litigious adversary who was insisting on taking supplemental depositions and swore that he needed hour, you know, at least four hours to complete these supplemental depositions. And when we sat down to do it, he took 37 minutes. And so from a <laughs> right. So on the next episode of the podcast, we'll talk about how to properly estimate your deposition time, but that's not today's. Um, <laughs> that's beyond the scope, but don't take no for an answer, right, my friend. Exactly. So, <laughs> but, but from that standpoint, completely agree with the technology because this would have involved the, the witness was in Chicago, right? There would have been a flight out, a prep, uh, all of those things. I, I completely agree with that notion. However, I also argued on behalf of the Tort Claimants Committee and the Diocese of Camden bankruptcy case in a very complicated motion about the bankruptcy bar date at the beginning of, I think it was February of this year, where 
the bankruptcy court was using a program called Court Solution. So not Zoom, just pure telephonic argument. You could not see anybody. I think there were nine different lawyers arguing. It took five and a half hours and you're not able to read the judge. You're not able to see your adversaries. We're talking all over each other. And you took a five and a half hour hearing, hearing that if it were in person, I'm guessing it would have been done before the launch hour. And so well, that, that's just a waste of everyone's time and effort. Right. Yeah. Right. So how do you maintain also the element of surprise? Like, what, what were some of the techniques that that each of you saw in the litigations you're involved in where you're having a deposition? You know, when I take a deposition, there are certain documents. I want to be able to slide that across at just the right time in the deposition to to surprise or get an, a spontaneous reaction from the witness. So how do we manage around that in the virtual world where we maybe have to give the exhibits in advance so that people have them before the dep starts? So I actually have a, um, a rather large case where there were multiple exhibits, cases of exhibits actually, that were sent the night before. They came sealed and needed to be opened on the screen. Um, so <laughs> Where's the trust, the- Robin? Where's no, the trust? There's no trust. <laughs> Let's be honest. So um, the element of surprise was certainly there when we opened these two cases of documents and saw them all neatly organized by number, no idea what was in them. And by the way, I think they used 10 of them out of two cases of documents over the course of a day. So um, we killed a lot of trees. For oh, and, and put those needles in the haystack. But I do think <laughs> that it was effective because when they said, pull out file 10 and you pulled out file 10 and you were on the screen, they could gauge your demeanor. So I thought that was effective. Now, we were dealing with professionals. If you were dealing with lay people, I don't know if it would have been quite as effective as the element of surprise, as you say, um, with a lay person. Yeah, that's the exact method that we used in both depositions and in a trial. It just resulted in more than two boxes. It resulted in about 12. Um, And we may have used 15 of the exhibits, Robin, so it wasn't much better. Um, I feel better. Yeah, right. But but truth be told, you know, we needed to get the arbitrators, the exhibits for the trial. They wanted them hard copy. Screen share is not an alternative. I don't. We can talk about that one if you want. But screen share is the worst invention known to man. Um, <laughs> how do you really feel, Mike? Not I, sure. That was the that was the PG <laughs> version of how I feel about screen share. Um, uh because, you know, you, the witness is sitting, you're putting a document up on screen share and then you're saying, OK, to the witness, read the document and someone else is controlling the scroll and you're just sitting there. I mean, so it's, it's ridiculous. But but I agree with Robin. The only way we came up with is the exact way she described, which is to ship in a sealed box, open it on camera. And by the way, the surprise only lasts till the first break because of the first break. They're flipping through all the exhibits anyway to figure out what's in there. And, and then the okay. surprise is gone. So, OK, we wouldn't do that. We were told not to, we wouldn't do that. And afterwards, we walked the two cartons of documents, the documents that were not used, to the shredder and shredded them as we were told to do. So, uh, but I'm sure a lot of other people are doing just what you said. All right. Well, let's let's talk about technology for a second, Mike, since you brought it up. Has it worked as seamlessly as the tech geeks told us it was going to? You mean when I was doing an oral argument last week or three weeks ago in Delaware and the judge could see me but not hear me? 
Absolutely. It works <laughs> seamlessly. Well, it's, it's better great. than being a cat, I guess, you yes. know, on I screen. So. <laughs> no, no, the truth be told, it, it hasn't worked as seamlessly as, as it did, you know, and sometimes it does. I mean, sometimes the, you know, the very basic functions work well, but, but sometimes it doesn't. And, and part of the problem is, is you have three or four prevailing platforms of, of technology and maybe the you know your law firm or your or your hospital has bought the license for the enterprise version of one of them, but not all of them. And so when you're doing Zoom, you've got the you know the high speed broadband you know v, you know super duper connection. And when we're doing Microsoft Teams, I'm connecting through AOL.com. So you know it's <laughs> like yeah. so the answer is no. But but to that credit, if I'm being completely you know fair. I will say that at least my experience is, is that our, our people reacted quickly and tried to stay on top of it, whether or not we've always, you know, been, been out front on everything. No, but, but we have never sat back on our hands and we're consistently trying. And I would agree. I have to tell you that from our perspective, um, the few times we've done it, we have an IT department of what, 150 or 200 people. And we kept an IPT person sitting right outside the office. So if we hit a glitch, there was someone sitting there to help us. And we tried everything the day, a day in advance, at least to make sure everything was working. We did everything we could to optimize the process, but it is not optimal, clearly. Technology is great when it works, which is mostly not most of the time. Um, all right. Screen fatigue. What about that? Is that a thing? Have you seen that um, either in depositions and or uh, for trial or hearing work? Absolutely. How many hours can you sit and stare at the screen and not lose your mind and not be distracted by your cell phone or your other email? Um, and you need to get up and walk. You know, at a normal deposition, you take more breaks you really have to bake in the breaks every hour so people can move around. Otherwise you just become too lethargic. And I think it, it takes something out of your witnesses testimony. Yeah. I've done multiple trials in my tenure at Lowenstein. And the one that we did, the arbitration we did last summer over, I think there were eight trial days, all virtual staring at what was a very big screen. I mean, it was a, a, a movie theater type screen just to, you know, produce the screen fatigue. At the end of that trial, I was more tired than I have been after any other, you know, case that I have, you know, done. And I think it's just purely from the standpoint of staring at that screen all day and, and then just silly things. The boxes are moving around. I mean, you're constant. There are so many other factors and even with breaks, it is, it's, it's really very hard to, to concentrate. And I, you know, it's just not as effective in my mind. You're not getting the, you, you're, you, you are, you are wearing yourself down quicker. Um, and that's not good for the case. All right. Let's talk about mediation before we wrap up here. Um, I, I noticed in my practice that a lot of cases um, went into mediation mode largely prematurely, but because the courts were closed, uh, everybody just kind of pivoted to say, all right, well, let's see if we can settle the case. And I'm curious to hear your experiences and insights into whether mediation can be done effectively in the virtual world, or is this something that as we all come out of our bunkers needs to get back to uh, an across the table in-person experience? Well, I can, I can start out by saying that I think it depends on a lot of factors. How well the mediator knows the attorney, how well the attorneys know each other, 
whether the parties need in-person attention to understand the process, because a lot of the times uh, the plaintiffs are newbies. They haven't been engaged in litigation before, and you just don't get the same impact on a screen as you do in an office with a mediator who's skilled at getting in there and uh, building the trust that's necessary to effectively mediate. I also think, in my experience, that cases get settled in the hallway between attorneys and not in the room with the clients. And I think that you lose that when you're virtual. I agree. I've settled more cases at the snack bar than probably anywhere else. And it's it's really the ability to go out and, and talk to the to the media and the other attorney and say, hey, listen, I'm in a jam here. Like, I've got a problem. You got to you, you need to help me solve this problem. And I'm willing to help you solve this problem. And when we get those have that kind of frank conversation, it's great because otherwise the alternative in the Zoom mediation world is, is, hey, can you kick your client out of the room and I'll kick mine out of the room and we can have a conversation. And the first thing the client does when they come back in and say, what'd you talk about? And so, right. right, exactly. It's not the chance meeting on the way to the restroom anymore. Everybody exactly. knows exactly what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, but, I, but I don't I, think I, I agree. agree with Robin. I, it's just not the same. Yeah. Very hard to build rapport over a TV screen. Yeah. Well, and look, some of the mediations that I've done in the olden days, pre-COVID, there's a lot of benefit when you've reached that impasse of getting the two clients together in a room to talk about the business relationship, if there's an ongoing business relationship there that you can leverage or that has meant something um, prior to this dispute arising between the parties, you know, there's there's a lot of benefit to that across the table in person uh, contact and connection. And and I would be remiss if I didn't share, you know, that that the technology associated with mediations adds additional layers of complications early on. One mediation I did, you know, the chat function is a great means of communication generally, but not when you're in an adversarial proceeding and you think that you're reaching out and chatting just the mediator saying, we're ready to make the next offer at X. And you actually chatted everybody, which actually happened in one of my cases. And mediators telling us, oh, don't worry, you'll definitely hear us before we come back into the room. We'll let you know. And here I am knee deep in a strategic conversation and boop the mediator pops up on the screen with no notice whatsoever. So um, I think there are additional sets of complications in the mediation context that will make it challenging. And and certainly I will be happy to return to the JAMS snack bar uh, to get my cases settled. All right. Well, so thank you both, Robin and Mike, for sharing your insights today. I think that we have uh, some, some pretty good positives and not so positives coming out of of the technology that we all learned over the last 15 months. And uh, we'd love to have you back at some point in the future, like maybe a year from now, we'll do a check-in and see what actually stuck and how much we went back to business. But thanks for joining us today on Don't Take No for an Answer and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe to our podcast series at lowenstein.com slash podcast. Or find us on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Lowenstein Sandler podcast series is presented by Lowenstein Sandler and cannot be copied or rebroadcast without consent. The information provided is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of counsel.
Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved.